Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program these stories are about the id unleashed they're about the wildness contained in all of us i think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world i think it's really hard to live without stories and if somebody tells you like this is the way you're going to end up you're lucky if you can forget that you know there's me and then there's writer guy me and then there's me working which is the absence of me it's just story had no idea how to write a novel didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself they're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Mary Gateskill, whose books include the National Book Award finalist Veronica and the Penn Faulkner Award nominee Because They Wanted To, as well as Bad Behavior, Two Girls, Fat and Thin, and most recently, her collection Don't Cry. Gateskill's stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Granta, Best American Short Stories, and the O. Henry Prize Stories. She's here today to talk about her latest, much-anticipated novel, the Mayor, about a childless couple in upstate New York who, through the Fresh Air Fund, host a Dominican-American girl from Brooklyn at their country home. The New York Times says the mayor shimmers with exacting and sometimes hallucinatory observation on nearly every page. And in its starred review, Kirkus says, Gateskill takes a premise that could have been preachy, sentimental, or simplistic, juxtaposing urban and rural, rich and poor, young and old, brown and white, and makes it candid and emotionally complex, spare, real, and deeply affecting. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mary Gateskill. Thank you. Most, if not all, of the reviews of the mayor begin by mentioning it as a departure for you. Uh, the New York Times mentions one name that has been given to you, the Downtown Princes of Darkness, but then says that this book is earnest and violently of the daylight. And then the L.A. <laughs> And then the LA Times says, uh, imagine the cast of Gateskill's last novel, Veronica, denizens of the downtown art galleries and clubs. 
if they got sober, got jobs and moved to upstate New York to raise families. But I'm, I'm curious, and I want to just begin here, is what is your relationship to this book and the rest of your work? Do you, do you yourself feel like this is a departure from, from what came before? In a way, it is. Um, it's, for one thing, it's a lot more plot-driven. Um, but also with this book, I, I don't know if I should admit this in public, but I will. Um, I, I actually consciously desired to write um, a heroic character. There's a lot of reasons for that, but that was my desire. I've never tried to do that before. Um, it, it, it isn't true. that One reviewer said that I have a cynical attitude towards my other characters. I don't agree with that at all. I don't. Um, I, I wouldn't bother writing about people I felt cynical about. Hmm. Or, or they might be side characters, but I would never have characters in like main major roles if I felt nothing but cynicism towards them. Why? I don't know why anybody would bother with that. Um, uh, I, I tend to be very sympathetic with my characters. This is a different kind of register, though. For one thing, she's very young, um, and you cannot help but feel. Uh, quite a strong level of sympathy and admiration for an extremely young person with so much stacked against them. Um, A lot of my other characters have things against them too, Um, but they're more kind of subtle psychological things, which are difficult as well. But if you've got that, as most people do, plus a lot of social um, institutional um, obstacles and you're like 10, 11 years old, uh, and you've got a, a, a good spirit, and you're trying to make sense of this, that's a character that you really, that is heroic. I didn't have to make it up. <laughs> People like that exist. Right. Um, and so I wanted to write about somebody like that. But I also think there's a similarity in, in, the, in the book in that in my other books, the characters... Um, are people who are trying to find love in ways that are socially not supported. And that same thing is happening in this book. Tell us about the explicit nods to National Velvet, the, the movie, or the book and or the movie in The Mare. You have the epigraph from National Velvet, the book, and then you have the main character named Velvet. Um, so we have, and the parallel thematically, the story of a girl, a relationship to a horse. Are these more a nod, an homage to that cultural phenomenon that was seemed particularly large at the middle of the century? Or is there some way you're interrogating the archetypes that are um, involved in the national velvet phenomenon? Um, neither. I don't really know why I decided to do that, uh, except that the, my idea for the book started. I'm, I'm never, I, I wasn't into horse books when I was a kid. Um, I didn't especially... I thought horses were beautiful, but I wasn't really into them when I was a kid. I wasn't around them much, and I didn't read about them. or I never saw the movie National Velvet, except one day I was teaching somewhere, and I was living in a rooming house because I didn't live where I was teaching. And I came downstairs, and my boarding lady had the TV on, and it was a film clip of National Velvet, Liz Taylor riding across the screen on a beautiful horse. And I just thought, wow, that's beautiful. I, I wish there could be... Um, a story like that about there, there was a girl I knew who um, uh, I felt would have loved to see a story 
with where a girl like her was in it. And I thought, I wish somebody would do that, but it, I can't do that. Um, then he, so that was the genesis of it. Yeah. I just wanted that kind of story, that kind of very, in a way, simple story and deep story about a connection between a person and an animal. And I just happened, I read National Velvet because I did make it a point to watch horse movies and read horse books while I was writing this just to see what I could pick up. And um, there was that line in National Velvet that I really liked and felt was felt worked. When you say you couldn't do it, what what sort of fears uh, did you have about doing it? And, and then how did you uh, decide to go ahead and pursue it as a book project when you immediate, your immediate response was, I couldn't do this? Well, the first was being a white person. Um, I, I didn't think that I could depict um, the world that the girl lives in. Um, or what she would think about. So aside from race, it's also difficult to do the point of view of a very young person. Um, I mean, she's 11 when the book starts, and, and kids are, are hard to do because they don't think like us. Um, and, and, I, and I only have a very dim memory of what it's like to be a kid that young. And what's what's hard about them is that they they see a lot. Even an average kid sees and feels a lot, and they understand a lot about life, but they are not articulate about it. They're not going to put it into words even to themselves. So it's hard to get that knowledge that they have without using language that they would never use. Hmm. I mean, you can allow yourself some leeway with writing. So there was that, and then the fact that she's not white, and she comes from a very different culture. She's not even African-American. She's Dominican, and that, that is a very specific... Um, cultural group that I, 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 I know something about it because of being because of knowing Dominican children but but still I felt like I, I can't did you have people as sounding boards to just help check whether you were getting, I did you did I did actually yeah um, but that was the main thing I, I, I just thought that it wasn't even that I thought I shouldn't do it it was I thought I couldn't yeah and I was particularly concerned with her, her neighborhood and, and just the whole thing. And, and then there was the horse thing. I didn't know anything about horses either. <laughs> yeah. So, <that's... laughs> so, so I, that's, there's very good reasons why I thought I couldn't do it. Right. In case you just tune in, we're talking to Mary Gateskill about her latest novel, The Mare. Well, the reason why I ask if, whether you were doing an homage or an interrogation of, of sort of a, what seemed like archetypal stories, the girls and, and horses that like Black Beauty and, and National Velvet is because it feels like you you do this really interesting thing in the mare with both Ginger and Velvet. So Ginger being the, the white woman who brings Velvet up from Brooklyn, um, you very explicitly involve their dreams, both their dreams at night, but also their fantasies during the day. Um, but they're also sort of self-aware of their dreams, uh, that they're enacting Ginger's desire to to be a mom um, or to mother, and Velvet sort of half buys into the idea of being a princess. I think, if if for lack of a better word, but um, they both really seem to at the same time see around the edges of those fantasies. Does that well, seem right? Yeah, I mean, Ginger definitely has kind of a fantasy, an ideal fantasy of motherhood and hoping that wanting to be able to do that. Uh, Ginger, the princess thing is, I mean, she doesn't literally want to be a princess, but she just wants to be treated really well. She wants yeah. to be treated like a special little girl. I was thinking of Cinderella, like yeah. being brought 
out of her not great home situation into another world that seemed fantastical. Well, I think all kids want to be treated like, you know, they just want to be treated really special at some point in their life, and she she wants that. And you have that similar uh, use of fairy tale in Veronica, too. It starts out with a, a fairy tale that then returns to at the end. Do you feel like there's any parallels there in, in what you're doing with, with uh, fantasy and, and fairy tale in, in the books? Um, no, it's a different it's a different thing in Veronica. That that's definitely a moralistic thing. Um, I don't see Velvet as in any way wicked. Uh, the, the 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 character in Veronica is kind of feeling a lot of dread. Kind of I don't know what's the word. It's not just guilt. She feels like she's taken herself to a very to a place of evil, essentially, hmm. and that she's barely escaped it. Um, and so Velvet is more like somebody who is longing for a, an ideal place where she can she can be herself and be respected and 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 be she, she's kind of a romantic kid. She wants she wants things to be like she sees on television. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if one of the reasons why people keep pointing to this as a a departure from your other works is a confusion that they might be having around being earnest and a lack of complexity. Because it feels to me like this book is very earnest and yet also very complex and dimensional. You, you mentioned the the issue of, of being called cynical, which seemed off to me as well. But do you think this this earnestness and this hopefulness that Velvet feels and even and Ginger feels, um, do you think that that's what they're latching onto as being more of like a predictable uh like say Hollywood movie story arc. I do think in literary world generally people are extremely suspicious of a straightforward expression of emotion. Yeah. Um, they think like I've seen like students will like bend over backwards trying to like not be sentimental and and usually the safeguard against sentimentality is kind of a sarcastic humor. Yeah. And and I have no problem with that, but uh, well sometimes I do, but but I, I you know humor is great and and sentimentality is is uh, repulsive, in fact, but but people sometimes, I think, confuse sentimentality with actual just emotion. Mm -hmm. You've written a couple pieces that I really enjoyed about um, making characters dimensional. You had this interview in in The Believer with Sheila Hetty where she's asking you a question about uh, what can be taught and what can't be taught in writing. And you brought up this issue of um, you brought up that you sometimes would talk about Bleak House with your students. That you'd read a section about Lady Deadlock. If if you don't mind, I just read it back to you. Okay. Um, it's on my mind right now because I just interviewed Ursula Le Guin and she was singing its praises as extremely formally experimental for its time. And oh, yeah. so I've been reading it now, and and it's I was reading book, yeah. reading it in concert with the mayor by coincidence, and then came across your quote about it. On the one hand, she's a very flat character, and we never cease to be aware of exactly what she's like. She's cold, she's rigid, she's self-tortured, she's proud. But in the paragraph in which she's introduced, there's this description around her of where she lives. And it's just this vast, moving, wet, dripping, surging world that is mysterious and strange and infuses her with this power, this female power. So on the one hand, she's the static playing card. But on the other hand, she's representative of this incredible force of nature, this primeval force and thwarted fecundity, a death and fecundity at once. When I think of that, it, it makes me think of um, 
the mayor because of this sort of like assumption that people are having, maybe from the jacket copy, of static playing cards versus the dimensionality of what of the actual reading experience. But also it feels like the characters know that they're playing cards at the same time. And yet somehow like the actual interiority that you're evoking in the book feels this like this intangible or hard to describe but achieve uh, dimensionality. I, I think what you're talking about is the characters like Velvet's very aware of her role when she's with Paul and Ginger of kind of like as one of her friends kind of sneers, they must think you're some little orphan Annie. Um, and she's aware of that. Yeah. And she can play, she can kind of play that part. Um, and especially when she's around Paul's daughter. Um, and she can even, in a strange way, enjoy playing the part. And Ginger's aware of the part she's playing. I think people are like that now. They're very conscious of, of themselves, I guess, because everybody watches TV and movies, and it was that kind of entertainment is blasted at us all the time. So it's hard not to see ourselves in that way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and it's natural, but it's 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 weird, too. And also Mrs. Uh, Velvet's mother, she's not quite like that, but but when she's hearing people outside on the street and she's feeling these these are good voices but have been distorted somehow by an iron hand whose hand what how did this happen so even she's aware of, of there's a real thing in life that's getting around her that's been distorted hmm. by by social forces in case you just tune in we're talking to Mary Gateskill about her latest novel The Mare on a similar note around creating dimensionality in characters, you, you just had an essay come out in The Atlantic about a scene in Anna Karenina. And it was really fascinating because you tied it into the, the mayor also. You were talking about how sometimes when a character surprises you most, when a character does something you least feel like is consistent with who they are, that gives them a greater sense of depth and a greater sense of, of selfhood in, in, in a book. And I was curious about that in relationship to your current book, where you said a character had surprised you in the way it acted, but you didn't say you didn't say what character and in what scenario. Is that a spoiler to tell us what what happened and around your character in the mare? Well, I can tell you, it's Velvet's mother. Did you find yourself having a sort of a dilemma around whether to keep that behavior in? No, I wanted to. It's just my my dilemma was how do I make it? How do I get her there? Um, so that it's completely real. Well, you brought up the issue around workshop, which I think is really common when you see aspiring writers using as a defense uh, when they're writing something that is unbelievable in fiction, that it really happened to them that way. And they'll say, that really happened exactly that way, even though it's not coming across as believable. So, so how do you reconcile that, that paradox between unbelievability being something of an asset if pulled off, and yet it seems to be one of the most common flaws of people writing thinly veiled nonfiction as fiction. Well, the unbelievable things are always happening, like really absurd coincidences, really insane violence, um, really incredible goodness that just seems to come out of nowhere. Um, it, it's always happening. Um, but in real life, it, you do, it doesn't sometimes it doesn't strike you as unbelievable because it's so woven into 
everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's happening right in front of you, and it's you may think, wow, that's weird, or oh, that's a coincidence, but you it doesn't occur to you to not believe it because it's it's just part of the fabric of everything that's happening around you. So I think to make it work in a story, you have to mimic that. You have to make it so part of everything that's happening that the the reader doesn't fail to believe it. Of course, I mean, sometimes readers just don't want to believe things and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about the animal aspect of this book. Um, the Including a horse as a, as a very significant character, but also you said you didn't have a lot of familiarity with horses growing up. So how did you bridge that that absence of knowledge when a horse and a relationship between a human and a horse was so uh, important to the book working? And being believable in the end. I'm assuming that you wanted people who did know horses to believe that that you that you were in a, a real world of horses. Oh, yeah. I, I, well, I had to learn how to ride. I spent uh, four years learning how to ride and, and volunteering at stables and grooming horses, cleaning out their stalls. Uh, and I'm not a good rider. It was really hard to learn to ride at the age of 56. Um but I basically do know how to ride. I, and I, I didn't, I w- I, I'm glad that so far anyway, the feedback I've gotten about that has been good because I really felt like I could spend another five years learning about mm. horses before I would know enough. Um, there's a lot I don't know. I, w- I, I would not call myself a horsewoman at all. Um, I, I know more than I did when, when I first started. Do you know enough that you want to continue riding horses? Well, I would, except for one thing. I'm living in Brooklyn right now, so I'm not in a place where... I mean, there are places you can ride in New York. There is a place in Brooklyn, but it's really funky. Um, and I don't think the horses are treated very well, and it it's hard to explain, but it's... it's uh, also, but, but the main thing, that's not really the reason. The main thing is... I became very, very fond of a particular horse, and I would have liked to still be involved with him and ride him, but um, he's dead, mm-hmm. so I can't do that. So, and, and without him, I'm not really that interested. It's, it's a lot. It's expensive to take lessons, and I don't have enough money to buy a horse. I, don't, I would have bought him if I, if I could. And you have two really really compelling minor characters in the mare, uh, Beverly and, and Pat, which both of them really leap off the page. I, I, I wondered if in, in your process of learning to ride, ride horses, if these were based on, on real people you'd encountered, they were so vivid and, and, and pretty ama- amazing whenever they were there. Yeah. And it's funny because they actually have, especially Pat has in a way more impact on velvet than ginger does. Um, and then they were actually kind of a combination of some people. Hmm. In a way, they were two sides of the same person. I would love it if you'd read the section of Velvet and, and Fiery Girl, her horse, uh, um, talking to each other, essentially, with air quotes. And it's it's really interesting how you evoke communi- nonverbal communication using language. Uh, I don't know if this is the best uh, example puzzle, but it's 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 one where it's very key in in the in the develop in their development. Um, it's yeah, they're just kind of still getting to know each other. 
And and you should I should say that the the barn that Velvet's going to is a little bit of a rough barn. Like Beverly is a horrible horsewoman. Like nobody would give this woman. She's crazy. Nobody would give this woman a job unless they're related to her, which she's related to one of these people. But but even Pat's a little a little rough. So that's why the situation is as it is. But anyway, she's going to the barn. Um, the next time I came to see Ginger, it was late, so I didn't go to the barn till morning. Nobody was there. The radio was pulled out of the office on an extension cord, and it was playing embarrassing cowboy music, but there was nobody. The horses had gotten watered and fed, but their stalls were dirty, and they were looking with nervous eyes. Then I realized I didn't hear Fiery Girl kicking. I got scared and went to her. She was standing in the middle of her stall, but when she saw me, she came up to the bars and looked at me with her eyes saying something I at first didn't understand. Then I saw her stall was full of shit, and she was saying, help me. I wanted to, but I was scared, and I told her, help me. But there isn't even anybody here in case you've hurt me. I won't hurt you. Help me. We looked at each other without any more words. She still did not kick or bite. I said, okay. I'm going to trust you, but if you hurt me, I will never see you again. Then I got a wheelbarrow and a fork and went back to her stall. Normally I didn't go into the stall to clean, but I didn't want to put a halter on her. I blocked the door with the wheelbarrow and went in. She got out of my way and she let me clean. When I was finished with one half the stall, she moved and let me do the other. She didn't look at me, but her neck was soft and her head was down. With her trembly lips, she said, thank you. In case you just tune in, we're talking to Mary Gateskill about her latest novel, The Mare. Is it crucial that it's a mare uh, versus a, a gelding or a stallion? What is, what is the difference? Uh, what are the, the characteristic behavioral differences? Um, well, I just, I don't know why I, I wanted it to be a mare. I suppose it, it was just a very intuitive decision that that title just came into my head almost from the beginning. Um, well, honestly, I'm not a much of a horsewoman, so I can't tell you for sure, but some people think mares are more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think they're more temperamental. They have hormone issues like like women do. Um, some people, though, believe that mares are more, they, they can really bond to a particular person. Someone said to me uh, uh, he prefers mares because he said they can be, they can be, you have to negotiate with them. Um, but a, a good mare, uh, I'm quoting this guy, a good mare will ride straight through a brick wall if you, if you tell her to. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if a mare will do that as opposed to another uh, uh, stallion if it feels that kind of connection. But he was saying that mares will really connect with you if they do. One of the one of the through lines I think with the mare and, and your other work is you've spoken about the polarity between vulnerability and and control, which feels like a real uh, central issue in the mare as well. Um, not just with velvet and the horse, but also Ginger, who's the more she pursues motherhood, she, the more she seems to be um, losing becoming more vulnerable, but losing more equilibrium at the same time. Yeah, she, she does change as the, as the book goes on. I, I think she's, she feels like she's, she's becoming more and more aware of her 
the limitations of her ability to be as much as she would like to be with Ginger. She feels she's losing, uh, not Ginger, Velvet. She feels she's losing Velvet. Um, she can't control what Velvet does at home. She knows Velvet has a whole other life as she gets older that um, she, Ginger, doesn't know about. And Velvet talks about it with her a little bit, but not very much. Um, and also it, she gets involved with, she knows her, her husband is... Um, stepping out on her even if she doesn't even before she knows it she kind of knows it and meanwhile there's this guy from her past who's kind of coming in so yeah she's got a lot going on (laughs) and do you think it's crucial that velvet's also going through puberty at the same time it feels to me like that imminent metamorphosis is really informs a lot of what's happening while she's upstate well ginger is because i mean ginger's not that old she's in her late 40s but I think she does turn 50 around the time around the course of the book but she's become very aware that the she's losing her her um potency as because of the contrast of being around a young girl who's coming very strongly into it in the in the most rough sketch of this book uh there are some parallels with your own experience with your husband of bringing children from the fresh air fund up to upstate new york i'm I'm guessing probably not as much of a parallel when we get to like the interiority. Uh, are there some significant divergences between your your personal experience with it and and what you ended up shaping in in the mayor that yeah you could definitely speak to? Um, definitely uh, for one thing, velvet can come up and the, the girl that we knew that way did really like to ride and she was also talented at it. Um, she was a girl who just kind of connected with horses very, very naturally and had a feeling of confidence and, and peace around them that some some kids just do. Um, but she didn't have, she wasn't able to come up and practice as often as this girl, and she wasn't, she just wasn't able to have that much, that kind of involvement, so she couldn't get as good as Velvet can get, hmm. as Velvet got. And her life was quite different. Things Things happened very differently. Was that the beginning of wanting to write the mayor? Was was from your personal experience with the Fresh Air Fund? Basically, yeah. I mean, it didn't. I didn't think of it um, for quite a while until I just happened to see that Liz Taylor thing, and I thought, oh, that would be great if if there was a movie like that. I mean, I was surprised when I saw the movie how um, progressive it seemed around gender. And the I was I thought it was going to be much different. Actually, it came with a lot of sort of cultural bias against it in some way, and was very surprised with the way they ended it. Well, it's interesting because what what the in some ways it's very traditional. She wins this. In case anybody who's listening doesn't know it, she this very young girl. I think she's she's about Velvet's age, actually fourteen or something. When she rides incognito in a national race and wins. That's why it's called National Velvet. It's the national. And she's disqualified, though, when they discover she's a 14-year-old girl. But her mom says, it's okay. You don't have to win a race. Women are better than men anyway or something like that. You're going to have children and raise a family, and it's it's all good. You don't have to. And that's kind of – I kind of had that idea for this, too, that that, that, – I originally planned for Velvet to win a race. The only reason that didn't happen is because one, there there's no races for girls. Apparently, there are. I don't understand this, um, but there are no competitive 
races for girls in in New York State. Maybe there are somewhere, but that's baffling to me. I, I, it is dangerous. That kind of steeplechase racing is dangerous. But a lot, but girls do a lot of things that are dangerous right. in, in horse steeplechase, uh, like fox uh, fox hunting, hunter jump, um, hunter pace contest. There, it's all dangerous. So, but still, there are no, there is no such thing. I would have had to invent something, and also. Um, uh, so I did, the next best thing was to have her enter this this particular show, but the hard, awful reality was that even as good as I have her be in the book, and as as I do have her give her a, not, a lot of time to practice, but she would be up against girls who were able to buy incredibly expensive, well-bred, well-bred incredibly trained, like the best horse training in the world, um, and who would be able to practice every day since they were six years old. Mm. And she, it would be just a reality is she could not win against those girls. And that became part of the book, though, that she sees that part of the world, no matter how talented she is, especially the horse she's on. I mean, it's, it's it's a good horse, but it's not a horse that's been um, you know, raised from the cradle to be a, um, a, a winner like that. Right. And so it would have been a, a it would have been too much. So instead, I wanted her to win. Also, the kind of contest. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much, but it's complicated. The kind of contest that she would be able to enter. It's not a straight win. You win points. Um, so then the, the and, and whoever wins the most points in all these competitions gets a ribbon or they, then they can go to the next contest, the next level. But for her to do that, she'd have to do a, uh, do a lot of these shows. And that just simply wouldn't be possible for her from where she's coming from. She couldn't come up that much. So the best thing was for her to enter one and win so many points that even if she didn't, you know, win the grand prize, she still would would upset everything that people would be like, where did she come from? Yeah. And that for her would would still be really big. Um, well, that's the part that I latched onto in the film that seemed remarkable was that even though you know she disguises herself as a boy, she wins, she's disqualified, she's re- she returns to town as a hero. Like yeah. they they it's as if she won. Yeah. So it's not only like you're going to go raise kids, but it's also like you you really did win by all. And and yeah, I don't want to say that, but Velvet has secretly won. As, as, you know, as yeah. far as I'm, and she does win. She does win the, the um, a ribbon in that contest. But the more important win is this that involving her family. Yeah. In case you just tune in, we're talking to Mary Gateskill about her latest novel, The Mare. How soon in the process of writing the book did you uh, come to its form of of brief chapters alternating points of view between Ginger and, and Velvet mainly? Was that something that you knew from the beginning, or was that something that you came upon and then went back and reshaped it? Well, no, I decided to do it because I did think I couldn't do it from just Velvet's point of view. I just didn't think I could do it. I thought the only way I could is if I also had Ginger, that if I could divide between the two, then I could tell the story. And it took me two years to conclude, to get up the courage to try, but... Um, I thought, well, I can I can pull it off if I tell half of it from Ginger's point of view. Um, but then the other voices kind of crept in. I initially planned to just go Ginger Velvet, Ginger Velvet. In the in the essay you did in Granta, the Lost Cat, about your own personal experience with the Fresh Air Fund, you had some uh, some phrases that really felt like they resonated with the mayor as well. Uh, and and I I think with your writing overall, you, you said. Gentleness sometimes expresses itself with the violence of pain or fear, 
and so looks like aggression. Sometimes cruelty has a very charming smile. And then later, if gentleness can be brutish, cruelty can sometimes be so closely wound in with sensitivity and gentleness that the cruel one winds up deforming and humiliating his own soul. Animals are not capable of this. It almost feels like that could be in, on the jacket copy instead of the uh, more Hollywood uh, thing that they have on the jacket copy for the mayor. Do you not like the jacket copy? I just heard you say that you thought it was corny in an interview. Oh, did I? Yeah. Well, partly um, a friend of mine looked at it and was like, this is terrible jacket copy. He goes, you should have gotten somebody else to write it. I don't think it's terrible. I just think that as I was trying to poke at it at the beginning, I feel like it creates a certain expectation where maybe people know what the book's about. And, And it's very different than the experience of reading the book, in my opinion. It's not predictable, and and that tease like those two quotes about aggression and gentleness um, and vulnerability and control. I think really point at something that no matter what the story is, um, is really about the experience of the story. Yeah, and and it is something I believe. Um, not not always, but some sometimes people who look really aggressive and mean really are. <laughs> yeah. But but and but I think sometimes people too can get in a habit of being that way because they feel they have to to survive. And actually, sometimes the more sensitive a person is to start with, um, if they feel they have to go to a really bad place to survive, they actually become worse than a person who is just naturally more, I don't know how to explain it, more crude, more rough, more aggressive by nature. It's the it's the more person who's more general by nature who can actually become worse because they feel like they have to Hmm. and that's that i i I don't i know i sound like i don't know what i'm talking about but i feel i have seen this with people sometimes that they act horrible but that that's not where they started from at all it may be too late there may be no you know it's just a tragedy there may be nothing anybody can do but it's because they started out from such a different place that they came that way Whereas sometimes people who seem so nice are they're they're not so nice. No. Yeah. Can you talk about your um, evolution as a writer? And I, I saw somewhere you describing your time at Ann Arbor and how you felt like most of what you were writing then wasn't very good. That if you as a teacher now received what you wrote then, um, you wouldn't think that you had had a lot of promise. What What was the process for you? Um, was it merely just writing more that got you from what you considered a not hopeful place to a place where you felt like you had facility with what you were trying to write? I, I really don't know. I'm sure some of it was, but I don't, I don't write as much as some writers do. I don't write every day. Um, so I don't really know. Yeah. Does that experience of thinking of your younger self and how you wrote, if you saw yourself now seeing it as a teacher, does that inform the way you teach? Probably not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Except I, I just, I do try to remember that if the my writing when I was very young, it, it didn't. I mean, there, there was one thing, though, that I did have, and, and I do, I notice this in students, too, and I see it, even though my writing was really stupid in most ways, and my characterizations were awful, and I couldn't tell a story, but I did have a sense of style. And that's not a trivial thing. 
um, that really matters um, in, in writing. And I did, at least I had an idea of it when I was younger. It wasn't very good, but I was at least trying to make it, I was trying to work with it. And so I do, I do notice that in kids when I, when I see somebody at least has a concept and, of what it is. And were there, were there writer styles that you were particularly aiming for um, in your formative years? There was a couple. I really liked Flannery O'Connor. Um, this is very young, but I don't know if you're aware of the work of Leonard Cohen. He wrote fiction. I didn't know he wrote fiction. He did. He wrote a book called Beautiful Losers, huh. which I really liked. It wasn't very—I I spent some time in Canada when I was young, and so that's why I knew about him. But, um, yeah, him and—who else? Oh, this is really embarrassing, but I, I, I liked um, Tom Wolfe. His early stuff, hmm. the electric Kool-Aid acid test. I think he's turned into a mental case now, but he, I, I really liked him <laughs> when he, he wrote like about that, yeah. those subcultures. Yeah. And are there any um, shadow books for the mayor, books that you were thinking of other than National Velvet when you were writing it? No, but it's funny. There was this, this has nothing to do with books but or with horses, but... Um, it was haunted quite early on by a scene that I saw from uh, a Kurosawa movie when I was before I knew what it was even um, years ago. I was like thirty years old. I was visiting my father and or my family, and uh, I walked into the the television room, and my dad was watching uh, an old black and white Japanese movie, and um, the only scenes I watched it, 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 it I watched it for maybe. 10 minutes, and two incredibly dramatic scenes happened. And the first one, a woman is sitting cross-legged or kneeling, I don't remember which, on the floor, and she looks really triumphant, though, and a man is standing over her with a sword, and he's saying, you bitch, you've destroyed my, you've, you've done this, you've done that, you've destroyed my city, and she said, yes. Your, your your city will is in flames, and he hacks her head off, and a huge geyser of blood goes up, and her body falls over, and then it changes to the city, which is in war. Or there's war. Or there's a battle, and <laughs> somewhere behind the <laughs> somewhere behind the scenes, um, a father, a really old man, is trying to confront his son who won't talk to him, and the servant, the old man, has a servant. And the servant is trying to persuade the young man to talk to his father, and he won't even turn around and look at him. He keeps saying, why should I, why should I talk to you so you can laugh at me again? Um, and the father and the servant finally says, look, look at him. Do you see laughter? And finally the son turns around, and there's this father is crying, and they embrace each other, and it's too late. They're being overrun. They've, so they get up on a horse, and the son says, we get, we'll get back to the castle, and we'll talk. And the father says, yes, we'll talk, and then he gets shot in the back with an arrow. Which is pretty much exactly what happens in the mayor, this whole, this Except whole story. Except nobody gets shot in the back with an <laughs> or arrow. Or decapitated. But, but, and I, but I said to my dad, what is this? And he said, I don't know, it's some Jap movie. And he turned the, he changed the channel. Wow. And, but it stayed in my mind forever because it was such a powerful scene. And the, the body language of the actor who played the father was incredible. And yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking of with the last hmm. scene. Wow. Well, it was nice having you on Between the Covers today, Mary. Thank you. We were talking today with Mary Gatesgill about her latest book, The Mare. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.
Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.